0: Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how, in the end, we all have rare in common. I'm your host, Andra Stratton, and I have a rare disease. Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the patient foundation, Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. We are on the road in Seattle at ACMG's annual clinical genetics meeting, We're really excited to have the rare opportunity to speak directly with members of the medical genetics community. The timing of this meeting is special as it falls during the first ever Medical Genetics Week, which is April 2nd through 6th. For more information, visit acmg.net. Joe, it's so great to see you and meet you here at ACMG. Likewise. So why don't you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're here?
1: Absolutely. Well, first, thanks for, for inviting me to come talk. Uh, my name is Joe Alamo, and I am a clinical laboratory geneticist at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm here at ACMG presenting some of my work, uh, getting to catch up with colleagues, and getting to learn a little bit more about the new technology. For ACMG, so that's been exciting. Um, I've been in the field now for about, I would say, who, maybe like ten years. I started. Um, I, I became very interested in genetics um, when I was an undergrad, and um, I pursued a wide range of studies related to genetics.
0: And was there something? And what about genetics was, was interesting?
1: I think it was just really understanding that this might be because I, I come from a very strong research background. Um, it's just really understanding how a cell works and to know that there, there is DNA in every cell and sometimes how that DNA looks can, can influence how a cell, cell functions. And I find that to be fascinating. So what does your job entail on a daily basis? So day to day, um, basically is management and signing out cases. So, um, Majority of my time is analyzing the data, uh, ensuring that the quality is there, ensuring that we're identifying the correct variants um, and interpreting those variants in the clinical context for the patient. We have a very large team that does that from the laboratory side. So a lot of people don't, I think, understand kind of like what goes on in the laboratory. There always seems to be kind of like this silo situation where the laboratory geneticists are over here and the clinical geneticists like in the, in the actual physical clinic are over here. And there's really not much much overlap, and so there's been recent initiatives to kind of you know bridge that gap and have more collaborative effort to kind of go back and forth. I mean, we rely really heavily on a clinician's um, a clinicians uh, intake and and how they evaluate their patient. It definitely drives our testing. Okay. Um, so yeah, we uh, you know we have a great team. We have a great team of molecular. Uh, individuals who are technologists that are specially certified in handling DNA and extracting it and amplifying it and getting it to a level in which people like the directors can, can say confidently that we've identified, you know, a particular variant or um, some type of mutation that is likely the answer for this patient.
0: So you're in the lab? I am in the lab. Do you ever engage with the patient?
1: Um, there are some rare instances where you can um, but most of the time, no, we do not. And um, as a trainee, you do have an opportunity to engage with patients. They make that uh, a priority when you're training to be a laboratory director and deal with this high-complexity testing. And, and uh, they want you as a trainee to be there when the results are delivered. Um, and that's part of just the training process. Um, and it's, it's so important.
0: Yeah, um, Well, so right, important. you really, the idea is really that people are driven by being able to See, the actual impact, or see the person versus just the the cells. Correct.
1: Right. Absolutely. I think um, I think what's what's really great is is our, our field is structured in a way where we have some really great liaisons to help the patients. I mean, genetic counseling is is they're specifically there to help patients and to help understand the complexities of this information. I, I can't imagine if there wasn't a, a liaison in between the laboratory geneticist and the, the actual clinical geneticist. I think it would it would be a very difficult time for, for patients to get the understanding they need to have for some of these things. I would say my background before actually going into the fellowship training to become a laboratory director, um, you know, I, it's really the reason why I even wanted to do it was when I was post and working with kids who had smith mcguinness syndrome and working with kids who had Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, these very rare neurodevelopmental disorders, and always going to, you know, the the parent conferences, you know, seeing the patients, meeting with them, you know, meeting with moms and dads and grandparents and understanding more about their child and trying to identify areas where we can help. And I feel like that alone, that five years was, you know, it was very influential for me, um, which even, you know, I don't need to see patients every day. Like I have... I have my experience with my patients, and that's that's what has actually driven me to be right. a laboratory. Geneticist. You've had it, yeah. So. I've like I've had it, and I'm like, okay, this is this is my. I think this is my calling. I'm going to help these people.
0: So, what what do you think that interaction can do to help advance um, the understanding of that disease?
1: Oh man, I think it is wildly underestimated in terms of importance, Um, you know, for example, when you go to these conferences and you meet with families and, you know, you get to hear their story, you know, it it is, it is a story, right? But there are important pieces of information in their story. Like, for example, you know, we, we learn about one family's experience about how to handle something and maybe, you know, for example... Smith McGinnis individuals, they they have an inverted circadian rhythm, so they sleep all day, and they're they're just up all night. You know, and it it wreaks havoc on a normal functioning family who goes to work in the morning. You know, your child is up at night. You do you? How do you handle that? Yeah, terrible. Um, you know, but people have different ways to mitigate it, and you wouldn't necessarily know how a certain family A is mitigating it versus family B. And you get to talk to these people and and figure it out and learn and and they pass on the information, right? But what is also cool is you also learn about the phenotype and more about what the problem is. Right. From, from actual people who are, you know, on the ground, like the, the moms, the dads are like, well, he does this or she has this. And like, you know, if we, don't, we tell the clinician and they say, oh, we don't know, like, we don't know. We don't really hear about that type of future.
0: exactly. We we don't. I see that as a trend. It, right. It takes everybody coming together to say, actually, yeah, we're all experiencing this. Right. So it is something to do with the disease. And wh- how would that change what you would do then, looking um, at the disease in in the lab?
1: Well, I think that's that's the power of a laboratory geneticist. Is that most of these individuals come with a PhD background who have have been knee-deep in this situation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm by, by no means unique in, in, in that. I think a lot of the individuals who are working in the laboratory have had a similar experience or some type of experience like that, which I think allows them to have a very different type of perspective when they're looking at variants and assessing whether or not this variant could possibly explain this, this particular disorder, even though maybe they don't check all the boxes you know, they might have some variability for those features and this could be it. Whereas sometimes maybe uh, some clinicians like to operate in a very tight box and they're like, well, we don't necessarily see that, but it's not like we're going to ignore it. Of course not, we'll always, they'll always treat the whole, the whole entire disorder or the whole symptoms that manifest. But I think from a perspective of just being a little bit more flexible and understanding that there are some things that are under-reported and that right. and that do need some attention um, but I think the problem mostly is just how do we how do we approach that, and how do we how do we find an answer for for those for those features.
0: What I get really excited about is when I have had conversations with people um, looking at lipodystrophy in the lab, and they're able to say, "Well, we're seeing this happen in the animal model." Are you hearing about this in the community? Or I can say. Um, you know, this is reported quite a bit. It's nowhere in research. It's not in publication. Do you see any of this in the animal model? And then there's this back and forth of, yes, yes, we do. And then that gives the patient advocate a little bit more power um, in going back to the clinicians and mm-hmm. saying, actually, <laughs> some of the researchers are seeing this too, so we really feel like this is something that needs to be looked at further.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really great example of you know, engaging with with the patients and being like, "Well, we have this," and you know, do you see it in your animal model? Unfortunately, you know, when it comes to research, money is always tight when it comes to research, right. and it's it's just an unfortunate situation uh, in general for research in the United States. You know, there there are there are a lot of things that we could be doing if there was more money allocated to rare disease research or just research in general. Um, and so, part of the problem is when you're stuck in these situations, is you have to make some some pretty some pretty, like, dis- right. discreet decisions. Like, I can only look at this with the amount of money I have. Right. Which is why it's actually kind of really great for this process of engagement with patients for research. And that, and I think that model is something that uh, I grew up in for when I was getting trained. And I think, you know, it, it has informed a lot of research questions for, for these labs.
0: Um, well, because then you really can. I mean, if you've seen something, but you're working with the community and you understand what's most important to them and you have these limited dollars, then say, okay, well, we can't tackle it all. But this is at the top of the list for the patient community. Right. So let's really start looking at that first.
1: Yeah. And I think there's great, great foundations out there that are doing this for certain disorders. Like, um, again, the Smith McGinnis uh, uh, group, there are are actually two groups. They have the, the parent and researcher group. So they meet together and we engage with with the, the families, we ask, you know, we educate them because there's always new people who are being diagnosed. So we're like, come on down, let's, let's walk you through everything. And there's also some forums where we're like, you know, what's going on? Like, let's talk, like, where, where should we be raising money? What should we be doing? What is our, what our goal for you? And I think um, also Pitt, Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, um, they are, that group is, they are ambitious. They, <laughs> you, have some, you have some moms in there and you have some dads in there that are serious. Yes. about I, whoo,
0: Parent no. advocates, parent advocates are the, I mean, the most motivated.
1: And I, think it, and I think it's so important to have that. And I think it's important to have these families engage with researchers. You know, I think without that engagement, you know, it's going to be harder to move things forward.
0: Do you think we're seeing this more? I mean, I know from my experience that the FDA is expecting it more and more and there's creating new policies and procedures and regulations and guidelines around how we can all partner together better. Um, I'm feeling hopeful. Are you feeling hopeful?
1: I'm always hopeful. I think, I think whenever the field is advancing new discoveries for a rare disorder or even discovering new disorders, um, I think that is just so good for us. Um, you know, you have to think about this field from like 20 years ago before the advent of next generation sequencing to identify everything. I mean, we have the number of disorders that are now available uh, to be identified is exponential. Um, And just that alone is a huge feat. But I think we've done that. I think think we got it. I think we figured it out. We could identify most of the things that are identifiable. You know, I think in the next couple of years now, the, the movement and the shift should be now focusing on treatments. Treatments. We'll see
0: prevalence increase too, though, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. I yes. think so. I think we're able to detect them now, right, mm-hmm. at, a, at, a, at a kind of rate and sensitivity that we weren't able before. Um, you know, there there are still people that will escape the traditional pathway to diagnosis. You know, they, they might be diagnosed later in life, whether that be because they just didn't have access to genetic testing or or they were being considered for another disorder when they should have been considered for something else. Right. You know, but well, that,
0: we know that in rare disease, right? They're often right. misdiagnosed for for years or undiagnosed for even longer.
1: Right. And I feel like we, there's always talk of, you know, making this just baseline healthcare. Like, let's just sequence everyone and, and see what they have and take it from there. I'm a proponent of sequencing everyone.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: I, I love it too. I think it's important. I, I think I think there's nothing wrong with giving people information, right? As Knowledge as, is power. Well, I feel like as long as it's disseminated correctly, you know, you can people can make informed decisions. And I feel like that's a lot better than most of the stuff we have in society, right?
0: So do you find yourself again, this is really just like a personal for fun question because I'm I'm always fascinated. Um do you find yourself walking around like that person must have that genetic mutation, or I see this here. Like, can you see phenotypes? The way you, oh my like, God! Yes, I absolutely. totally know what that is.
1: Absolutely. Like, like it, I probably do not speak for everyone, but I will say I am studying for my boards right now. Which, um, obviously, you know, I have to know a lot of things to pass my boards, um, and. Yeah, so that stuff's at the forefront right now. If I'm, like, walking into work and I, you know, I'm on my way walking down the street, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, that man looks like he might have Marfan syndrome or something like that.
0: Yes, oh, I do that all the time, some of those diseases, particularly my own right so I know lipodystrophy I know it really well I know how underdiagnosed it is and I also know there's multiple phenotypes yeah. and I know them right. so I am always like hey you candidate candidate mm-hmm. candidate especially when it's so obvious it makes me a little bit nervous like okay they definitely have it do I tell them do I not tell them
1: yeah I feel I feel like you know it's just part of the way my brain works right you know I, I'm trained to to know features and to know phenotypes and of course I look at that and I just you know, it stops me in my tracks for a second because it is, you know, to be trained and to know those differences, it's a little bit shocking. You're like, hey, oh wow. But I also, you know, love when, you know, like the other day I was in the gym, I was working out and there was this little boy who was on the treadmill and he had Down syndrome. And I immediately was, I'm like, I'm gonna walk next to him. I wanna talk to him. I wanna talk to the mother. And we just had this lovely conversation about how she's like, well, we exercise because, you know, sometimes they have obesity. And we make sure he walks, and it's just you know it's interesting because I'm a geneticist, so I feel obligated not to engage because I'm curious about what's going on. I just I just want to just want to engage with with patients and yeah. just talk to them. It's cool.
0: Continued. Okay, so in the last ten years, there's been a lot of advancements. What do you think is the greatest advancement in genetics?
1: Hmm. I, I I think when you think about kind of where we started and where we are now, I would say. I would say probably the success of of, of gene therapy or gene gene related um, treatments. Um, I think that's that's kind of the biggest advancement right now because prior to that there were none. Um, so,
0: do you think we're at end all there? Like, okay, we've we've figured out gene therapy and
1: we're done. I don't think we've exactly figured it out. I think I think the problem is is that there's limitations of who's a candidate for that. Um, now. Whether or not everyone who has a genetic disorder will be a candidate in some way, shape or form, unclear, very unclear. But that's what I think is, is mostly going to be a problem for us going forward. But at the end of the day, it's still a viable option for some, more than what we've ever had before.
0: Yeah, right. I think so. It's scary though.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it is. I think, you know, there's technologies that are advancing the way we can restore certain losses. um, and, And that's... That's, again, that's amazing. That's to come from just being able to never identify a genetic disorder to now people showing that we can correct correct some of these things. Um, That's wild. That is wild.
0: I think genome sequencing should be more available, and you think that it should be available for everyone.
1: Yeah, I think we've done a really good job of figuring out the technology, so now I think it's time to leverage it. I think it's time to start putting it to work um, and putting it to work for the better health of everyone. Um, you know, there are some challenges with making the statement that everyone should be sequenced, healthy or not. Um, but
0: what do you think those challenges are? Oh, I mean, man, so many. <laughs> can you, what, what's the top one challenge? I mean, there's so many challenges, but in your opinion,
1: I, I think it's, it's, there's a large educational component that, that is going to be the limiting factor to this. I think, you know, a lot of people are curious about what their DNA says and, and what that might mean for their health or what that might mean in terms of their ancestry or or different things like that. I just think it's going to be very difficult to try to put predictive value on some of these things that we do identify because, you know, we, we don't know the answer to everything. We, we, we don't have the correct interpretation um, for all variants that we can identify.
0: Right. We don't understand nature versus n- nurture in some of, of these variants,
1: right? right. And, and, you know, we're just we're in this process now of, I like, to, I like to call it the cataloging process. We are in the golden era of identifying new disorders and variants that cause those disorders, and so we're cataloging it. And so we're all librarians. I mean, pretty much. And <laughs> hopefully, once that library is full— and there's no more room for any more books, <laughs> um, that's when I think we could start getting very serious about providing some information to people who um, we can potentially put some predictive value towards some of the variants we're identifying in their, in their DNA, whether they're healthy today and they might not be healthy at the age of 60. You know, it's just getting everyone aware and educated and counseling people. And, and, and I think the other part of this is you know, making sure there are other protections in place for these people. Who knows if we get sequenced whether or not that information can be used for other other reasons. And um, you know, there's this crazy healthcare debate going on in the United States. <laughs> so
0: I honestly, I mean, I think we could have a whole conversation about this alone. Um, I'm I'm honestly surprised um, in my community uh, for people who've had a diagnosis and struggled to get a diagnosis still don't want sequencing or they don't want the information for the sequencing um because I have always looked at things like knowledge is power but it's not it's not not everybody wants to know some people are afraid of other people knowing so yeah we I mean, we Whole conversation about yeah. the, and, the you know, it, evils or the uh, you yeah. know the pluses and the con.
1: But the good parts. thing is, is we we have some superheroes to combat those evils, right? We have we have ACMG. I mean, they are fierce policy advocates. I mean, we did a really good job when when in 2008 when GINA was passed. Um, of course, that was a really good measure at the time. But you know, obviously, if um, at this meeting, I think we talked about how we're looking to modify some of additional policy going forward. And the legislative process in in doing that, you know, so it's 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 always it's always interesting when you see that we have to, you know, advocate for certain things with lawmakers and engage with them in a way where, you know, to you and me, this is just no brainer. Like, of course, you need to consider this. Why aren't you considering this? Right. Um, So, yeah, I think I think it's good that we have such a such a wide reaching organization in terms of making sure that we um, protect our people.
0: Well, I'm not entirely sure that our healthcare system is great with preventative medicine. And I see genetics as prevent, could be preventative medicine, right? So we've got to make a few shifts, at least before we're ready.
1: I agree. And I also think that, like, there still has to be proof of principle studies uh, to go out there and say, look, we sequenced these healthy adults and we found these variants. And then, you know, these, these variants have X predictive factor. You know, maybe maybe they do have some variants that are involved in some type of cancer manifestation that is late onset or something like that. Um, the good thing is people who are in these diagnostic labs and in these clinical settings that have the power to, to do these sorts of things, I mean, they're doing it now for when to offer genetic testing at a critical phase of an infant's life. Um, and they're showing that that is a more cost-effective approach. Um, I'm sure insurance companies love this idea of cost effectiveness, so it seems like if we could show the same thing of,
0: yeah, that's really what it comes down to, right? Uh, We've yeah. got to prove that it would save a bunch of money.
1: Save lives. Or to be honest with you, um, I don't even know how you would measure that because uh, essentially you would you would you would counsel people to make healthy lifestyle choices based on their the variants identified. Um, and and I think you know, I think in some cases, this is why we have a certain number of genes that we report incidental findings for because we know that regardless of what variant you have, if it's a variant of uncertain significance or it's a likely pathogenic or pathogenic variant, you know, these, these do cause devastating outcomes and you need to, to, to be followed up with and make certain decisions to make sure that perhaps maybe you don't be one of those people who has an event due to your variant or your gene.
0: Absolutely. With all of our advancements we're making and um, that you've learned about here, where do you think um, rare disease will be, and how we treat and look at rare disease in the next five to ten
1: years? So, I think I think in the next five years, at least for identification purposes, things will probably happen a lot sooner um, relative to how um, you know some people will go through some diagnostic odysseys. I'm sure you've heard your story in itself is a diagnostic odyssey uh, for how long it took you to find your answer. Um, I think that's going to start going away. I think that would be more of a rare occurrence than it would be as a common occurrence. And right now, that unfortunately is a common occurrence. Oh, yeah. Um, So I think the technology um, will make that be be going away much, much sooner. Um, In terms of treatments, I'm very encouraged by seeing a lot of engagement with pharmaceutical companies here. I think, you know, there are some companies that have already started to set a trend for looking at different mechanisms um, that cause disease for certain disorders. And I think, you know, those aren't the only disorders with those mechanisms, which is, in my opinion, providing proof of principle that some of these technologies could be applicable to many other disorders. Yes. And I think, you know, the conversation is just starting. Um, And that's, that's great. I mean, when I got into this field... I I was uncertain about how we were going to go forward and and think about management and treatment. I I think that was something that I was not clear on. And I think after this meeting, I'm starting to get a better sense that, you know, there are ways, um, ways that I was not expecting that we would be able to leverage certain types of technology. So I think in the next five years, I think we'll start to see maybe the number of treatments available for individuals probably double. Um, And I think these will be treatments that, aren't necessarily to manage um any of the features of the disorder but i think seeing something that will be more towards the line of correction um, trying to rescue some of the phenotypic features i mean obviously there are some disorders where that won't be able to to happen right um and and that's for uh, there's a variety of reasons for that but you know there's a lot of encouraging work going on especially with individuals with diseases related to their, their eyes i mean there's it's just it's
0: right. If we can cluster and and really um increase the the amount of people that can be impacted by yeah. one discovery among multiple right. diseases. And, and it
1: and it and it does take an army, right? It does take lots of researchers and it, it's great that it's more than one pharmaceutical company that's interested in, in doing this or other types of companies because it just can't be shouldered in terms of cost and and the amount of research intensive time it takes to get there. It just can't be shouldered by 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 one person. By one. Yeah.
0: I feel incredibly hopeful, especially after speaking with um, up-and-comers like you.
1: Oh my God, am uh, I an up-and-comer? Can an you up-and-comer, believe it? I don't yes. know. I don't know. Sometimes I like to think I am, but other days I don't.
0: <laughs> well, I feel like you are. And I, I like to hear that, I mean, really in our in this next generation of scientists, the, all of these things that used to be really uncommon are just going to be expected. It's the partnership. The listening, taking all the pieces of the puzzle, yeah. and working together.
1: I mean, this is—I mean, genetics is truly one of those fields where it takes everyone, everyone's voice to be heard to be able to move things forward. It, it takes the voice of the patient, it takes the voice of the laboratory geneticist, the voice of the genetic counselor, the the clinician. It's it, you know, it's a great collaborative effort to always push things forward. And I feel like it's hard to say that for for other fields in medicine.
0: That. I imagine sums up really hopefully what the experience of ACMG has been for a lot of people. I think that that message has been kind of out there loud and clear, certainly feels that way for me. Joe was so much fun. I knew it was going to be fun. I mean, it was a blast. It was really insightful, informative uh, discussion. This episode was recorded live at the 2019 American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics annual clinical genetics meeting in Seattle, Washington. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare in Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in Common. Click, listen, feel,